Good morning. It is great to uh, be back with you again. And I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. And I'm just very, very excited about you guys being able to move into your next phase with your interim pastor. And I don't know when, uh, when he said um, he has to accept you, what's wrong with him? <laughs> Who wouldn't accept you? I mean, my goodness. So if he doesn't, uh, if he has any question about that, have him give me a call. Okay, we'll have a long, long conversation. And it'll be a good one. No, it's just been a blessing. You're just so receptive. I'm so grateful for uh, just, just the positive attitude I just sense here. And, uh, you know, the praise team, I, I just again, I just want to thank you, all of you that are part of that praise team. I, I just feel like we worship. I was talking to them this little bit this morning. I'm so grateful. I, just, I go to some churches and I feel like it's an entertainment show. And I come here and I feel like, no, nope, this is worship. They worship, uh, they worship on stage. They worship the Lord. And they, they, they invite you to worship with them. And so thank you. I just appreciate that. During the Korean War, there was a South Korean civilian Christian who was arrested by the communists at that time. And he was ordered to be shot by the commanding officer, who was a very young man. That young communist commander found out that this man was uh, the head of an orphanage for children. And so he decided that uh, to spare his life, but instead brought his 19-year-old son and shot him in front of his father's eyes. Later, as you know, the Korean War only lasted for a few years, and after the war, this young communist had been arrested by the United Nations forces. He was tried and he was sentenced to death. And when the uh, father of that son heard that, he immediately contacted the United Nations and he requested and pleaded for the life of that young commanding officer. He said he was really too young and he had a lot of life ahead of him to live that he really didn't know what he was doing. And then he said this, would you please give him to me so that I can mentor him and train him and nurture him. Amazingly, the United Nations re uh, granted that request. And they gave this young commanding officer who had ordered this man's son to be shot in front of his eyes, they gave him to this man and his wife and he went and lived with them. And the man became a believer, a follower of Jesus, and later pastored a very thriving church in South Korea, all because of the forgiveness of a couple. Is there a person that comes to your mind that has wronged you, has hurt you, has abused you, has disappointed you, has failed you, has let you down, and maybe continues to do so on a regular basis? Is there a face that immediately you can put in your mind, it's just etched in your mind when I spoke, that just brings up those hurts and those wounds? 
How do you feel about that person when you think about them? How do you feel towards that person? How, how do you feel when good things happen to that person? How do you feel when bad things happen to that person? Are you happy when they suffer? Are you happy when they struggle? Are you happy when they go through hard times? Does it disappoint you if uh, they're not suffering, if there doesn't seem to be some kind of vindictiveness that they're paying for? You know, unfortunately, wounds and hurts and offenses from people are an inevitable part of life. And you and I cannot go through this life and not experience that. You and I many times don't get to make the choice as to who hurts us and who doesn't hurt us and who wounds us and and who doesn't wound us. You can choose this, though. You can choose how you're going to respond to those people. When that happens. And by the way, there's only two choices you can make. You can either make a a choice that's really what I call a default choice, or you can make an intentional choice. The default choice is that you can become bitter. If you allow this wound to go untreated, just like a physical wound, it will continue to fester and fester and fester and it'll become more and more infected until if it's not treated, it will affect every aspect of your life. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. Look at it up here. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and, it beco- and by it many become defiled. You know, it's an interesting thing what that verse says. That verse says, listen, when you let bitterness go untreated, it not only affects you, it affects people around you. By it many are defiled. Many are defiled. And I don't believe that there's anything that I've seen more in counseling or more in working with people over the course of ministry than unresolved bitterness in their lives that they've just allowed to grow and to grow and to fester and to build and to begin to to dominate their entire being. But there's another choice you can make, and that's an intentional choice, and the intentional choice is that you can forgive. You can forgive. By the way, forgiveness is the result of responding to the grace of God. Did you notice that back in verse 15? He said, don't miss the grace of God. God gives you grace for those times in your life when you're wounded and offended. You know, I think the problem is sometimes we think about grace as just a past event in our life. We understand it's the grace of God that saved us. We understand that it was the grace of God that got us out of hell and got us into heaven. And so we think that once we make that, uh, have that relationship with Jesus Christ and we've experienced that grace, that's all grace did. It just got us out of hell and got us into heaven. But I want you to know that the Apostle Paul teaches us that grace is an ongoing work, ongoing work in our life. He says in Titus chapter 2 that the grace of God has appeared to all men, bringing salvation to all men. That's a past thing. That's right. Grace has a past work. It brought us salvation. But then he goes on to say, teaching us. That's a present tense. So that grace continues to teach us. Well, what does it teach us? It teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age. 
And then he says grace even has a future look. He says it causes us to look for our blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, so grace is an ongoing thing in your life. And see, one of the problems is, is that I think one of the problems we have with grace and understanding is the way we define it. Now, it's not so much that we define it wrong, it's that we limit the definition. So many times you have probably heard this over the years, that grace is the unmerited favor of God, right? How many of you have heard that? Yeah, I mean, we've always, if you've heard on grace, it's the unmerited favor of God. It's the undeserved favor of God. Or you've seen the acronym grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. I mean, all those things are true, but I think they're just, they're just lacking a little bit because you see, all of the attributes of God are active. And those definitions are not so much activity. They're just more a description of grace. Let me, let me, let me show you what I mean. You take John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. You all know that verse, right? For God so loved the world. There's an attribute of God, the love of God. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave. There's the activity. Love is giving. See, that's the attribute of God. We see the activity of God. He so loved that he gave. So what is the activity of grace? I think that one of the activities of grace is this. I think that not only is grace the unmerited favor of God, the undeserved favor of God, I think that grace is also the enabling power of God in our lives. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 2, just, just put those words in some places where grace is. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourself. You know that verse? Think of this, for by God's enabling power are you saved. Isn't that right? I mean, you didn't save yourself. God saved you. It was his enabling power. Do you realize that when whatever situation that you go through, God gives you his enabling power to deal with that situation? If you don't respond to that enabling power, if you don't respond to that, uh, to that grace, then what the writer of Hebrews says, that a root of bitterness can spring up in, with you. I think people struggle with the issues of forgiveness, not only because they don't respond properly to the grace of God, I also think they struggle with the issue of forgiveness much in part because they misunderstand what forgiveness is. You have some wrong perspectives concerning forgiveness. For instance, let me, let me give you a couple of perspectives concerning forgiveness. Forgiveness is not, let me tell you what it's not first and I'll tell you what it is, all right? Forgiveness is not pardon. It's not pardon. Pardon is when you clear someone of guilt and wrong. In other words, you just clear the record. They don't even have a record anymore. And that can only be done by someone in authority. God is really the only one that can clear a person of sin. God is the only one who can really say, I don't hold your sin against you anymore. It's gone. We don't have that authority to do that. We don't have, even if a person sins against us, we can't say, oh, you know what? That wasn't a sin. Don't worry about it. No, we don't have that authority to do that. Only God can do that. Only he can pardon someone. But I think even in a more practical way, I think that we need to understand that forgiveness is not letting someone who's wronged us off the hook. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, that, we do that. You know, we got this little conception that if someone's wronged us, hurt us, or abused us, we're not going to forgive them because if we forgive them, then they'll be free and I'll be still stuck with what they've done to me. So I want them to be stuck with what they've done to me, right? I want them to be on the hook. I don't want to let them off the hook. 
The problem with that thinking is that a lot of times the person who has offended you don't even know that they've offended you or they don't care. They're not on the hook anyway. You think you've got someone on a hook and he's not on a hook. I went fishing the other night and I thought I had a big fish only to find out I had gotten caught up in my motor. The fish wasn't on the hook. I was on the hook. Okay? We get caught up sometimes in our own motor. We get caught up on, we're, we're, we hook ourselves and we think, oh, I can't forgive that person because if I forgive that person, I'll let them off the hook and I'll be stuck with this thing. What you don't realize, they're already off the hook and you're already stuck with it. We need to understand that about forgiveness. It's not letting someone off the hook. It's not pardon. Forgiveness is this. Forgiveness is the emotional releasing of one who has wounded you. And I say emotional because that's what it is. You see, that's, bitterness becomes a very emotional thing. And when you forgive, you conquer bitterness in your life. It's the emotional releasing of one who has wounded you. It's the clearing of their record with you and transferring responsibility for any kind of vindication to God. Is it not God? The Apostle Paul said uh, that God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says who? Says the Lord. It's his business. So when you forgive, please get this. When you forgive, you're not so much freeing the person who offended you as you are freeing yourself. You're freeing yourself. And by the way, God wants you to be free. He wants you to be free. The problem is we have misconceptions about freedom. We think freedom is the ability to do what we want to do. The ability to choose what we want to choose. That's not real freedom. Freedom is not the ability to do what I want to do. It's the power to do what I ought to do. It's not the ability to choose what I want to choose. It's the power to choose what I ought to choose. And true freedom only comes from knowing and living out the truth which comes from the word of God. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, Jesus said. But where's the truth found? Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, John 17, your word is truth. That's where it's found. And you say, well, that's all good. Well, what does that have to do with forgiveness? Well, God has given you truth in his word regarding forgiveness. And if you violate that truth, you forfeit your freedom. And what you do is you find yourself then bound in a potential mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual prison of torment. Because there's all kinds of consequences, folks. All kinds of consequences that come from forgiving. And and I'm not going to go into great detail about this, all right? But let me just mention to you uh, four of them. First of all, there's mental consequences. Listen to... um, uh, this from a doctor, this was uh, S.I. McMillan wrote a book back in the 50s that um, was called None of These Diseases, and he wrote this, he said this, he said, the moment I start hating a person, I become his slave. I can't enjoy my work anymore because they control my thoughts. My resentments produce too many stress hormones in my body, and I become fatigued after only a few hours of work. The work I formerly enjoyed is now drudgery. Even vacations cease to give me pleasure. I can't escape their grasp on my mind. 
When the waiter serves me porterhouse steak, it might as well be stale bread and water. My teeth chew the food and I swallow it, but the person I hate will not permit me to enjoy the taste. Maybe that's why Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 17, he said, better is a dinner of herb, herbs where love is than a fattened ox with hatred. Okay? So there are mental consequences. Not only that, secondly, there are emotional consequences. And one of the most common consequences of bitterness and unforgiving spirit is depression. Now, I'm not saying it's the only one, and I'm not saying that if you fight with depression, it must be that you got some bitterness against some person. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that it's a potential consequence that comes, an emotional consequence that comes with bitterness, with holding a grudge, with not forgiving. You know why? Because it requires emotional energy to remain bitter. Did you know that? It requires emotional energy. So just as you become weary when your physical energy is exhausted, you become depressed when your emotional energy is exhausted. So bitterness can affect you, and unforgiving spirit can affect you emotionally. There's emotional consequences. There's physical complications. Chemical imbalance. High blood pressure. Toxic goiters, ulcerative colitis, heart issues are just some of the physical consequences that have been documented that come from being bitter, holding grudges, not being willing to forgive. And the reason behind that is this. It's very simple. Our, our, our resentments and our bitterness triggers certain hormones from various glands in our bodies, pituitary, adrenal, thyroid, and other glands. And when there's an excess of those hormones released in our body, rather than help us, they cause disease. So it affects us physically as well. But I think maybe the greatest consequence of being unforgiving is not the mental or the emotional or the physical. I believe the greatest consequence of being unforgiving are the spiritual consequences that come. And let me just name three of them this morning for you. And let's look at these. First consequence that can come from not forgiving is that we have find an inability to love God and to sense being loved by God. An inability to love God and a sense of being loved by God. Look at 1 John. And I'm not going to have you turn to these places. You can see them up here. And I know you're wondering if we're ever going to get to Matthew 18, but we will. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, this is talking to believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. See, you, you can't say you love God. You have, you, you have no ability to love God if you hate someone else. Because that dominates. You, you can't serve two masters, Jesus said. You can't, you can't serve loving God and hating your brother. You're either going to hate or you're going to love. They, they just don't mix together. Jesus said this in John 14, 21. He said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That word manifest means to reveal or to disclose or to make oneself real. You know why so many times Jesus doesn't seem real to you? So many times God's presence doesn't seem real to you? Maybe because there's things that you're harboring against other people. 
And Jesus can't manifest himself to you because you have his commandments about forgiveness, but you choose, to keep, you choose not to keep them, not to obey them. And as a result, you forfeit not only your ability to love God, but you forfeit your ability to sense his love for you. So that's one of the spiritual consequences. Second spiritual consequence is you forfeit the confidence and intimacy of prayer. Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty five, 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, I'm not going to take a vote in here, but that's pretty broad, isn't it? Have anything against anyone? I mean, at least he could narrow it down to four or five. But this is anything against anyone. So that your Father also is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And the insinuation there is that if you don't forgive, there's going to be complications when you pray. You're not going to have that sense of confidence, that sense of intimacy in prayer because something's happened. Now, you'll understand that more when we look here at the third consequence, the third spiritual consequence, and that is this. We forfeit the forgiveness of God. We have an inability to love God and sense being loved by God. We forfeit the confidence and intimacy of prayer, but this one may be the big one. We forfeit the forgiveness of God which produces a loss of true joy and peace in our life. Now, I tell you, I had you turn to Mark 6, or Matthew 6. We're there. So look at it. Matthew 6, I want you to go to verse 14 and 15. And here's what he says. For if, now just stop right there, circle that word if. It might be different in your translation, but this is the ESV. For if, that that word if is a conditional word. You have a statement based upon a condition. So whenever you see an if in Bible, here's what you got. You got a, a statement that's coming that's probably a promise, but the promise is based upon a condition. So let's look at what he says. For if you forgive others their trespasses, there's the condition. So the condition is you're going to forgive anybody who sins against you. For if you forgive others their trespasses, in other words, when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will, there's the promise, right? Will what? Forgive you. So there is. Condition, you got to forgive them their trespasses. What's the promise? Your heavenly Father will forgive you. Look at verse 15. But if you, and there's the if again, so here comes a condition. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, here's the promise. Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let that sink in. That, my friend, is a frightening, serious statement from the lips of Jesus. I mean, think about that. God won't forgive you. Now, I know what you're wondering. You're wondering, is Jesus saying that if I don't forgive someone, he's going to retract his forgiveness from me and then I'll be lost? No. That's not what he's saying. Okay, that's not what he's saying. So then you say, well, then how do you explain what he just said? Okay, let me try to do that. You need to understand that there are two aspects of forgiveness for us as believers. There is what is called positional or judicial forgiveness. 
positional or judicial forgiveness. That forgiveness was given to you when you trusted Christ. The moment that you trusted Christ, the moment that you gave your life to Jesus Christ, it was given to you because here's what Christ did. Christ took upon himself your sin so that you could have his righteousness, okay? I mean, there's two great doctrines here. You have the doctrine of imputation and the doctrine of justification. So the doctrine of imputation is that our sin was imputed to Christ and his righteousness was imputed to us when we believed. In other words, he took all of our sin. When he died, he bore the judgment of God that was supposed to be for our sin and gave us his righteousness. So as God sees you right now, you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And so when he sees the righteousness of Christ, when he sees you, he doesn't see you, he sees the righteousness of his son and he declares you to be righteous. That's justification. Justification is the declaration that God sees your righteousness. That he sees your Christ. That's exciting news, folks. I mean, if that don't get your tra- tractor crank, you got a dead battery. Okay? But that's, that, that's what it's talking about. So he took our sin, he gave us our righteousness and get this now, we are fully freely and finally and completely forgiven all our sins, past, present, and future sins you haven't even committed yet are already forgiven because judicially God has forgiven you everything in Christ and every time he sees you, all he sees is Jesus. Man, that's worth an amen, isn't it? Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. He says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. That's, that was our previous condition before we were saved. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive, that's being born again, uh, that the Spirit of God made us alive together with him, with Christ, and then this, having forgiven us all our trespasses, and that is having forgiven. In other words, he already forgave. You haven't even committed some of these things yet, and he's already forgiven you. That's judicial forgiveness. And you say, how do you do that? Look at verse 14. He did it by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. That's the law. God looked at the law and he says, you violated this, you violated this, you violated this, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. And guess what he did? He canceled the record. He said, you're no longer guilty. Because Christ has fulfilled the law. And you're in Christ. I mean, this is beautiful. But here's the thing with this. This kind of forgiveness, judicial positional forgiveness, is not experienced by you. In other words, you you can't feel this. You didn't feel God declaring you to be righteous. You didn't feel your sins being taken from you and put upon Christ. You didn't feel Christ's righteousness being given to you in clothing. You didn't feel that. Uh, and you didn't feel this kind of forgiveness, okay? It's a declared forgiveness based solely upon the finished work of Christ and activated by your faith in him. That's when it happened for you. Now, you said, whoa, Mike, that's really exciting, but that doesn't answer squat regarding Mark Mark 6, 14, 15, where Jesus said he's not going to, Father's not going to forgive us. So yeah, okay, let's get to that because remember I said there are two aspects of forgiveness. One is positional judicial forgiveness. That's this that we just looked at. But the second is parental or experiential forgiveness. 
And that kind of forgiveness, that's the kind of forgiveness that brings a daily cleansing. That when we sin against God, we confess our sin, it renews fellowship with the Father. When we sin, that's the kind of forgiveness that the Apostle John was speaking about in 1 John 1 9 when he says this if, and there's that word again, there's that little two letter word, if. So here's the, here's the it's a conditional thing he's going to say. If we confess our sins, in other words, not just so we say, if our Lord, I'm sorry for my sin, that's not what confession is. Confession means means to speak the same thing about. It means to say the same thing about your sin that God says about. So if God calls this a sin, you don't call it a mistake. Two plus two equals five is a mistake. Okay? What God calls a sin, you and I have to call a sin. We can't compromise that. So that's what confession is. So he says this, if we confess our sins, because we still sin, and we need cleansing, Because there's a breach now in our fellowship with the Father. What's the promise? He is faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What happens here is this restores fellowship. It restores relationship. It, It restores communion. Unforgiveness does not affect our union with God. It simply affects our communion with God. It's kind of like a parent-child thing. This kind of forgiveness, this experiential parental forgiveness, is kind of like a parent-child thing. You know, how, how many of you have children out there? Okay, okay. So, you know, I'm sure well, your, well, your child, I know, isn't bad, but I had children that were bad. Okay, they were naughty. You know, the first time that, the first time when my child did something that was bad, I did not take him down to the adoption agency and throw him on the counter and just say, look, he's yours now. Find another parent for him. You know, sorry, boy, you had your chance, but you screwed up, and so I uh, hope we get better parents next time. We just don't do that, right? I mean, there are some, you know why there are children? No matter what they do, you know why there are children? They're children either by our blood or they are children by adoption. Do you know how we are the children of God? We are the children by the blood of Christ, or we are either children by adoption. Isn't that great? And he does not throw his children aside when they sin any more than you as a parent throw your child aside when he sins. There's a breach in relationship. There's a breach in fellowship. And how great is it when your little child comes to you and they just got those big crocodile tears and they say, Mommy, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do that. And you just, what do you got? I'm sorry, you're not my daughter anymore, soldier. No. There's There's a relationship now that is that is built back because there was a sorrow for that sin. That child realized they hurt you. They had done something wrong. Just That's what we do when we confess our sin. Listen, God, he just welcomes us back. He's faithful and he just, he forgives us our sin. He cleanses us from all of that unrighteousness. How many of you have ever prayed the Lord's Prayer? Okay. We know that in Matthew 6. Now, we're in Matthew 6 right now. Drop down to verse 12. And by the way, it's not the Lord's Prayer, it's really the disciples' prayer because the disciples said, teach us to pray, and Jesus already knew how to pray, so it wasn't really his prayer, it was just simply a pattern for them to learn how to pray. But it's all right to pray it. But when you get to verse 12, it says this, and forgive us our debts, and by the way, the word debts here is identified, what he means by debts was identified in verse 14 and 15, trespasses or sins so you can put the word sins or trespasses there forgive us our debts or our sins or our trespasses as boy there's another one of those stinking little two-letter words 
Circle that, because this is really important. It's another conditional word. Forgive us our sins as, and here the word as means in the same way. Forgive us our sins as we also have forgiven our debtors or those who sin against us. You know what you're praying? Listen, if you prayed that prayer, do you know what you're praying? You are saying this, Father, forgive me. Please forgive me my sins in the same way that I forgave and fill in the blank with the name of the person that came to your mind. You forgive me just like I forgave them. That's how I want your forgiveness to be. So if you put boundaries on your forgiveness, you're saying to God, I'll put boundaries on my forgiveness. If your forgiveness still is able to hold some wrongs against them, then God's forgiveness is able to hold some wrongs against you because that's what you're praying. You say, you forgive me the same way that I've forgiven this person. That's what we're praying. And when we refuse to forgive those who have wounded us, we lose the security and the reality of God's forgiveness in our lives. You won't experience the fellowship. You won't experience the communion with the Father because your unforgiveness has created this barrier to his parental forgiveness. Does that make sense? Now, if all of this is the result of having an unforgiving spirit, then maybe it's imperative for us to learn what God does say about forgiveness and make the application of that into our lives. And I'll tell you, I, I, when I was preparing this, I had actually prepared another little two, three-part series. I wasn't sure how long I was going to be here, but I had actually prepared another little two, three-part series I was going to do, and I called Sheldon, and I just had kind of talked with him about it because I, I felt like God was just putting me in a different direction, and this is the, forgive, this is the direction... Uh, that he's given for me to take. So I hope it's beneficial for you. But because the Bible has so much to say about forgiveness, I think the most practical and easiest way to understand is what Jesus taught in Matthew 18. So I want you to turn there. Now, originally, I was going to be in Matthew 18, but this was all introductory. So now we're in Matthew 18, and I see some of the fearful looks on your faces. Don't worry about it. We're not going to... We're not. <laughs> We're not going to get through Matthew 18 today. We're going to look at this parable. We're, we're going to talk about the parameters of forgiveness from this parable. We're going to look at the, about the parable of illustrating forgiveness. There's a parable about illustrating unforgiveness. There's a penalty for unforgiveness in this, in this uh, passage. And then we're finally going to conclude with practical ways uh, to forgive. And you say, are you going to cover that all today? No, I'm not. I'm only going to cover one. The parameters. Look at Verse 21 and 22 of chapter 18. Then Peter came up to him. You know, when something amazing happens, Peter's usually at the root of it. <laughs> I, I love Peter. I really do. Because I'm, I'm a guy that tends to say something before I've thought it through real well. So Peter came up and he said to him, Lord, how often will my brother... So he's talking here about Christians who sin against Christians. How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, as we begin reading this, verse 21, we can already begin to apply the truth of forgiveness into our own lives by inserting the person's name who has hurt us in the place of the phrase, my brother. Lord, how often will so-and-so put the name in there? 
sin against me and I forgive him. As many as seven times or as much as seven times. Let me tell you something. How long do you remember someone's sin? Because if you bring it back up to them, after you have forgiven them, you are just like Peter. Peter is saying here, as many as seven times, it's revealing something. First of all, it's revealing the legalistic nature of an individual. In other words, you know what you're saying? As many as seven times. Where's the limit to my spirituality? How, how often do I have to be spiritual here? Seven times? Now maybe it's possible that Peter was doing what uh, uh, the rabbis taught in that time. And I think he, he may have been trying to impress Jesus. Because the rabbis taught at that time that you only had to forgive a person for the same offense three times. After the fourth time, you're toast. Okay? So I think Peter's thinking about this whole forgiveness thing, and he's thinking, oh, okay, wait a minute, Jesus will be impressed with this. Hey, Lord, how often should I forgive my brother? Seven? Now look at Jesus' response. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not, <laughs> I, I would have loved to have been there to see Peter's eyeballs when Jesus said that. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven now, I know there's people sitting in this auditorium today who are doing the math. And you do the math when it comes to forgiveness. You say, okay, well, if it's 490 times, okay, I know someone right now, they're up to 413. <laughs> They've only got a few more to go, man, before I can cut them off, punch them in the nose, whatever I want to do. That's not the point. You say, well, he couldn't possibly mean that, could he? Oh yeah, he reaffirms it in Luke chapter 17, verse 3 and 4. Look at how he says this. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day. In other words, he commits the same sin seven times in the day and comes back seven times saying, I repent. You must do what? Oh, I mean, most of us live by the old saying, right? Burn me once, shame on you. Burn me twice, shame on me. The point is, with whether it's seven times in a day or whether it's 70 times, seven, 490 times, Jesus, he's not talking about counting. He's saying this, the point is you're not counting. If you're counting, you're not forgiving. That's why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 3, he says this, he, talking about love, he says, love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. And that word resentful is an accounting term. It means to keep a record, to keep a tab. The NIV says that love does not keep a record of wrongs. It's like the two guys that were talking one day and one guy said, to his friend, he says, you know, every time my wife and I get to a heated argument, she gets historical. And, and he looked at his friend, and he kind of shook his head, and he says, you mean hysterical, don't you? He said, no, I mean historical. She remembers everything I've ever done. Well, that's what Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Genuine love is not historical. It's not historical. Forgiveness clears the history. 
It clears the history. That's what God's forgiveness does for us. Look at these verses. I know they're in your outline, so make sure that you look at them once you get home, but look at them up here. Jeremiah, God says this in Jeremiah 31, 34. He says, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins how long? No more. Isn't that great? It's the only thing God doesn't remember is our sins. How about that? How long do you remember someone's sin? Because listen, remember, we're to forgive the way God forgives. We'll see that in just a second. But if you, if you keep bringing a sin, a, an offense, a wound back up, after supposedly you have forgiven them, you are counting you're not forgiving. You understand that? Look at what David said in Psalm 103, verse 12. He, he kind of comes at it from a different perspective. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he, God, remove our transgressions from us. You know, there's something significant about that statement. Do you know why he said east from the west and not north from the south? Because if you start going north, you will only go north so far around the world before you start heading south again. And if you go south so far, you only go so far around the world, halfway around, before you start going north again. But if you start going east around the world, do you know that you will always keep going east? And if you go west around the world, you'll always go west. East will never touch west. North will touch south. Now, how would you rather have God remember your sins? North to south or east to west? So if God doesn't remember your sins, north to south, why should you and I be north to south forgivers? We clear the record, you see. We clear the record. And you may be sitting here this morning, you may say, well, yeah, listen, Mike, I'm not God. Well, I'm sorry that argument's not going to work. Because Ephesians 5, 1, Paul says, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. And he wrote in Ephesians 4, 32, he said, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as, there's that little word again, as God in Christ forgave you. When you go to forgive someone, your forgiveness is going to be based off from God's forgiveness for you. Said the similar thing in Colossians 3.13, look at it. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. Must. This is not suggestive. You must do this. Friendships, relationships, marriages, families, churches, have been divided, have been ended, have been torn to pieces because one or both parties are keeping records of wrongs and unwilling to forgive. Unwilling to forgive. So what's Jesus teaching here regarding the parameters of forgiveness? He's saying, look, there is no boundary. There is no limit. There is no parameters. And you know what? He knew as soon as he said that, not only would Peter and the apostles have trouble with it, but you and I would have trouble with it too. And so what he did was he gives a parable to illustrate and teach the truths that he wants us to know about forgiveness. And Lord willing, we'll look at those next week, okay? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We thank you for its truths. 
And this morning, foundational, just feel like Father was foundational for us to be reminded again about the great, great forgiveness, the judicial forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus, that you have, you have forgiven us every sin, every sin we've ever committed, every sin we are committing, every sin we'll ever commit. Because you don't see us, you see your son. What a powerful, almost inconceivable for us, for our minds to grasp that. But Father, I thank you. Our minds don't have to grasp it. We just have to simply believe what you've said. This is what you've recorded for us. This is what is true. At the same time, Lord, we thank you that you've given to us your grace so that we can experience the power of forgiveness when we forgive others who have offended us. Just as we experience your forgiveness, your parental forgiveness when we sin against you, and you are so faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us and restore us into meaningful relationship with you. So, Lord, we just bless you. We thank you. We praise you. And I pray for folks in this room. I've enjoyed getting to know them. Lord, I, I pray that this message today and the ones that will come will just grip them through your Holy Spirit. You will teach them. Lord, if there's unforgiveness that runs through this church, I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit will cleanse it completely so that there's a freedom in this body to be everything that you've called them to be for your glory and for their good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.